Welcome into the Orlando Drummer Podcast, episode four. I can't believe it's episode four. Yeah. Flying, flying by. Yeah, um, we got it. Yeah. How are you doing today, Chris? Doing well. Happy 2021, everybody. Oh, yeah. I turned 26 on the first. Hey, 26. I am a new man. New man. Uh, I, I made it a quarter century. I'm, I'm excited for the next quarter century. Death and is ever closer. When I'm still doing this podcast at age 50... We'll see what I look like. Yep. We have 25 years <laughs> scheduled of this podcast. So, <laughs> Okay. Um, um, yeah. yeah. And I'll so, throw it off to you to start off some news. Sure, sure. So admittedly, drum news is very light. Um, there's a few a few things that are coming out around this time of year, like products and stuff around the NAM season, but we're just like a week or two before that normally happens. So a little light on news. But one cool thing we do have to share with you, well, I guess it's not. It's not that cool. Um, it's, it's so the, cool. It's so cool. The uh, all of the entity <laughs> snare drums, the entity OD, my signature snare that launched, um, you know, about two weeks ago, and uh, everything sold out in 36 hours, which was unbelievable because I have never dabbled in sort of the gear world before. I've never sold or put my name on any type of piece of gear. So. Me and Sal and Matt and everybody involved in this project of the Signature Snare, you know, we had no idea if it was going to take us two months or two days to sell um, these 12 snare drums. And they all just disappeared immediately. So it was really flattering. It was really humbling to see that happen um, and really exciting as well. So if, um, if by any chance you were somebody who missed the boat on that, where you wanted to order one but you didn't get a chance to, um, we're working on the 2021 batch, which is going to be ready around summer-ish this year. Obviously, it's, it's a little slow going because they're all handmade. Uh, but if you go to EntityDrums.com, um, you can contact Sal there and get your name on the waiting list for the 2021 batch. Uh, there's going to be 20 of those snares available, so almost double what we did uh, the first time. And that waiting list is actually filling up. I know a number of those are already sold. So anyway, just wanted to thank you guys for the overwhelming support for that new product. It was really exciting. And um, yeah, stoked for the 2021 batch to come out. And of course, it's not just our gear that we're looking forward to. There's all sorts of cool gear that's probably gonna come out this year um, as NAM sort of comes out. We know Miles got some stuff coming out in a couple weeks. And um, so yeah, excited for, for a new year with new gear in it, but we're a little early, so nothing yet. Can't wait, yeah. super excited. Oh yeah. Oh, and real quick, I'm gonna share with you my favorite dad joke for the new year. Uh, this is a good one for you. I'm getting old because this was actually funny to me. Um, if you thought 2020 was bad, wait till it turns 21 and starts drinking. Huh? <laughs> it's a good one. It already, start <laughs> it already started at 16. Yep. Started young. <laughs> Drinks as a teenager. It's all... Yeah, it's the inside joke, right? Oh, man. Um, all right. So we'll start off with some Q&A. Uh, right. We answer fan questions in Q&A. It's real simple. Uh, these questions can come from Instagram, YouTube, the forum page of OrlandoDrummer.com, or sent to me at Chris at OrlandoDrummer.com. And we'll start out with Brex DeBleeker. I hope I'm not butchering that. You are. I'm, you don't. Uh, what do you do for cable management? Cable management... Man, that's a good question because I've spent an irrational amount of time organizing cables in this studio. My cable setup is somewhere in the ballpark of 250 cables, I'd say, in this room. Um, you know, running 16 or so channels in the actual drum set with vocal mics and then splitting all of them, running through uh, multiple interfaces and everything. So I'm looking where my audio setup is. But um, yeah, it's definitely something that is worth your time researching and investing investing your time into managing your cables, um, especially as your setup gets more and more elaborate. You can't really afford to just have like spider webs all over the room. So 
there's a few things that, that you should do. One is the, the Velcro straps. That's what I like using. You can get them on Amazon. I was gonna say you probably got one over there, right? Yeah, they're everywhere, hundreds of them in this room. So those Velcro straps are maybe like four to six inches long and like an inch deep or wide, I guess. Um, get, get a box of 100 of those or a bag of 100. They're on Amazon, they are pennies. It's absolutely worth getting those. They also sell them with labels on them, like little um, white dry erase write-on little labels. You can get those too. That's also worth doing, um, <clears throat> especially if you're going to revisit your cable setup after like, I don't know, a year or two and you wanna know what everything is, that's worth doing as well. Uh, but another interesting thing that I did was invest in these cable raceways. That's the name of it, a cable raceway. Uh, did you ever have Hot Wheels growing up? Yeah, yeah, the little orange tracks. The orange track. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had some of the blue ones. Yeah, man. And uh, <laughs> so it looks like that, like uh, like you're buying Hot Wheels, like plastic strips, and they have these 3M sticky things on the back of them. And there's there's basically a top and a bottom. So the you basically put the bottom with this 3M sticky stuff. Uh, it looks like you're gluing Hot Wheels to like your ceiling or to the floor or whatever, the Hot Wheels tracks. And so you're building a raceway. And... You build that raceway wherever you want it to go around your room. And these packs, the cable raceway packs, you can get them on Amazon, they come with uh, different connectors. So they have like 90 degree angles, they have ones that go around corners, they have 45 degree angles. So you can build this raceway very specifically in a different path around your room. Um, so you just put on the bottom layer so it's like an open Hot Wheels track. You put all of your cables inside of it so they can hold like I don't know, maybe up to eight XLR cables. And then it has like a cover that snaps over the top. So it makes for this really, really clean way to snake all of your cables wherever you need them to go. Um, in my room, I did them all above the ceiling because I have, I'll throw in some B-roll here so you can see. You know, I have uh, four microphones above the kit. I have a computer monitor that has an HDMI cable and power coming out of it. I have three LED lights and a couple other lights that are up there. So it ended up being, you know, maybe 10 plus cables that needed to go from my ceiling to not the ceiling. They had to run down the side of the wall, either to my audio setup or to an outlet for a power source. So what I ended up doing was getting, uh, I think I got five sets of these cable raceways. They were like a little under $30 around there. So for 120 to 150 bucks in that range, I was able to run all of these cables that were above my kit sort of along my ceiling really, really clean, then down back behind my computer and hide all of them. So Velcro strips, big one. Cable raceways, another one totally worth your time. And another weird one that a lot of drummers forget is the XLR snake. So an XLR snake is basically a box with XLR inputs. Um, you can buy them with eight channels on them or 16 channels. I have a 16 channel one. And you plug all of your XLRs from your drum mics directly into that box. And then one fat cable comes out of the back of that XLR snake and it runs for 20 feet, 30 feet, 50 feet, whatever length that you actually buy. So it's a good way to connect your drum microphones to your actual computer and your audio setup because I'm not a fan of having like a drum set set up with XLRs just snaked all over the place coming out of it like some spider web of cables just sort of exploded. So yeah, uh, I think it's really worth your time to get an XLR snake, get the Velcro um, little wraps to keep your cables clean, and then Cable Raceways is another really good one as well. Between those three, that should solve every cable management problem that you could ever have.
Sick. Yeah, I, I set up the cables with you when we did the studio about yeah. a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. Super simple, super clean, and made sense. Yeah, it's worth the time too. You know, it's it's. I don't. We we might have spent like an eight hour day doing that. I mean, you can spend a lot of time organizing cables depending on how elaborate your setup is. But the moment something breaks or you have to fix something, you'll be so glad that you're organized. It's really the biggest pain is when you when something breaks and you got to do a deep dive and you're like, oh. Okay, so starting from scratch, basically, just a big old pile of black cables. Yeah, or, you know, I will mention Austin Bertram. He's a fan of the colored cables. He does that one. So buys, like, his XLR cables in a rainbow configuration. Or you can even buy electrical tape and tape the ends to match them. But that's a good organizational tool as well. So, like, if blue is the rack tom, you just follow the blue all the way around the room, and then that's your rack tom cable. So if it ever breaks, it's really easy to identify and pull out of your whole setup. So... Yeah, depends on what you want to do with it, but that's another good option. Yeah, an eight-hour day to save time in the future. Yeah, exactly. All righty. Next question comes from Basilio de Zimone. You got some wild names today. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> what do you struggle with when it comes to practice slash playing the drums? In other words, what are you not good at? Mm. Um, now, first of all, I'm not good at a lot of things, that's for sure. But for me... You know, I think I would be lying if I said that I didn't have any natural ability to play drums. I, I think a huge majority of drummers found that they have some sort of natural talent, things that they're good at, some of their inherent strengths. And I think when you step outside of those strengths and you step into your weaker categories and you're sort of battling against your own nature, things that don't come very easy for you, that's when practice gets the most frustrating. And I think this is a, a commonality among all drummers and all musicians, you know, Practicing stuff that comes easy to you is is just a lot more fun, right? So in me, for me, that would be the rock world, the pop world, uh, things that I have a background in listening to, the music that I just inherently understand a little bit better, and I know a little bit more of the history, things that are in my wheelhouse. That's very comfortable. But as soon as I get out of my wheelhouse, like Latin being a really good example, when we get into, you know... What's a weird example I can just make up? The historical difference between the Mozambique and the Tumbao and the Bayou. Dude, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't inherently know that. I didn't grow up listening to that kind of music. So in order for me to really practice this efficiently and to learn those things, well, it requires one that I go to Wikipedia and do like a little history lesson with myself. Um, it requires that I learn some new vocabulary to understand like what does the word cascara and clave mean, right? So when you go that far down the wormhole, you find yourself deeply uncomfortable sometimes. It's just studying things that, that don't come naturally to you, uh, whether because you've never lived in that environment or you just have no listening experience or you never learned the history and the background of that music. So for me, as I get into those categories, that's where I struggle the most. And I think this is not exclusive to me. I think all drummers have experienced this. If you grew up playing metal and all of a sudden I, I throw on a Katy Perry track and ask you to do like a pop setting, you're going to struggle with that for sure. It's just out of your comfort zone. So uh, for me, that would be jazz and Latin are the two that I have the least experience in, the two genres I have the least experience in, and therefore I struggle the most in playing those. And I think it's just rooted in um, how shallow my knowledge is in some of those genres of music. But all that said, there is a huge benefit in focusing on some of your weaknesses in that way, trying to convert them into some of your strengths. Though admittedly, that is some of the hardest practice to actually do. And conversely, you could make the argument that there is 
a tremendous benefit in doubling down on your strengths and being that hyper-specialist, somebody who doubles down on what you're already good at naturally and gets really good at that. That tends to be my preference, um, but that's very personal. It depends on how, how you want to approach it, you know? Yeah, I think there's something to be said too about when you step outside of your comfort zone and you feel like a beginner again, it's almost like an exciting rush of starting from scratch and getting to do something new, even though it's within the sect of, you know, skills that you already have. Yeah. But being a beginner again, being excited about that, it's super yeah. great. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've heard people expand on this before that <clears throat> something that makes champions, let's say, whether it's that. I don't know, mixed martial arts or, or any Olympic sport or anything like that. You know, one of the common threads that you'll find with them is that they have a willingness to have a beginner's mentality, you know, well into their career, even as champions or even as high-level performers of whatever they do. They're they're willing to maintain a certain level of humility that that you know sort of replicates that that a beginner might have. They're excited to learn, they're very humble. But I think one of the ironies is that becomes more difficult to do the better you get at your craft. And so for me, I've definitely noticed that as I've gotten, let's just say, you know, for lack of better words, like good at playing drums, there are, it becomes increasingly more difficult to act like a beginner because you have this little ego battle in your head of like, but I can already play A, B, and C, so like why do I wanna go to D and struggle? Because like I should be past that. And that's just not how learning works at all, right? It requires that that redosing of humility um, to sort of treat yourself like a beginner. And I think that gets more painful as time goes on, but it, it's worthwhile. It's worth doing for sure. All right. Next question comes from Dylan Mandel. Right. Which kick pedal tension is optimal for your playing? So for me, I always like to think when a kick pedal shows up in the mail or you bought it at a store, wherever you get your kick pedals, um, it's going to be like a pretty medium tension, pretty balanced and down the middle. For me, I like just a hair tighter than that. So just a little bit above medium. But I also think that it's dependent on the pedal itself because some pedals have different feels to them. So like DW9000 is a good example of like, that's a heavy ass pedal. Like it just, it feels really, really heavy. It's also like buttery smooth, but it's got a natural weight to it. And so in, in that scenario, you know, you might want a little bit tighter of a spring setting just to compensate for the heaviness of it. Um, there's also beaters that have like different weights to them. Some beaters, the Mapex Falcon, which I played for years, it had um, interchangeable weights in the beater, like like it had a 10 gram and then a 20 gram, or I don't know if those increments are correct, but um, changing the weight of the beater would certainly change how you wanted the spring to feel. So there's a number of variables. It's not just spring tension. I think one of the realities is though, there's always a danger of going too low in your spring tension before there's a, a danger of going too high. If you go too high, I don't really know what the con would be of going too high other than the feel is very unnatural, right? Um, and I think as you get in, into more speedy playing, speed metal or genres where speed is like very required, I think you might need to go with a tighter tension just so that spring can keep up with the mechanics of your actual foot or the physics of your foot. But I think the danger would be if you go far too low that the pedal can no longer, the spring, can no longer keep up with what your foot is doing. So I would say start in that medium range. 
I wouldn't really explore going that much lower. And you know, one question is why would you go with a very low spring tension? Like what happens when like maybe like older jazz or like cajon playing comes yeah. to mind, but maybe nah, nothing yeah, anything, past that. anything delicate. Like if yeah. you're feathering with jazz with like a, a heel down sort of technique, maybe I probably shouldn't speak too much on that. It's not, not my wheelhouse. You know, maybe there would be some advantage to that if there was a certain feel that it had that you enjoyed. But for the most part, I would say, um, you know, it's a lot like throne height where whatever you're used to, you're, you're only used to it because it's been that way for so long. If you make a slight adjustment and you get used to that new adjustment, even if it's uncomfortable for a week or two, you might find a benefit in changing that setting. So if you've been playing the same spring tension on your kick drum for like a year or more, try tightening it a little bit or loosening it a little bit and experiment with that new setting and just sort of see how it feels on you. Um, yeah, I think it's trial and error. It's worth worth uh, adjusting a bit. But for me, medium, how it comes out of the box, a slight tune up from there or, or tension from there, uh, that seems to be the sweet spot for me, but probably genre dependent and mechanics dependent. You know, how long are your legs? What genres are you playing? There's, there's a lot of variables to keep in mind. Cool. All right, that'll do it for the Q&A segment of the podcast. All right. Just as a reminder, you can send these questions via Instagram, comment down below on YouTube. Uh, you can go to the members area of OrlandoDrummer.com, or you can send me an email at Chris at OrlandoDrummer.com. And now we'll move on to Accent or Ghost. Woo! Accent or Ghost. <laughs> In this segment, I'll present Adam with a largely debated topic among the drumming industry, and we'll, you know, or a new product, or any viewer-submitted content, and we'll get an approval, or an accent, or a disapproval, a ghost. We're going to ghost everything. First off, we'll start off with symbol accessories, such okay. as symbol bacon, ching ring, little bells, etc. Oh yeah, well, yeah. So first of all, there's definitely two sides to that argument for sure. There are people who, um, DIYers, who would pitch the argument that every one of these symbol accessories that's on the market, that you could just go to the plumbing aisle or the hardware aisle of Home Depot and replicate all of those. And I. I hear ya. I think one of the easiest examples where you could pitch that argument is the symbol sizzler, isn't that the yeah, word? Yeah, sizzler, something like yeah, that. Yeah, we're talking about that, or a sizzler, yeah. So it's, okay, it's a 19 cent washer, and it's a ball chain that you would have in like the mechanism inside of your toilet, right? So yeah. you, you can absolutely go to the plumbing aisle of Home Depot and replicate this for like a dollar, for sure. Or on Amazon, right? You could, you could build a hundred of them for like two bucks. And I understand that when you go, I think Promark makes the Sizzler. You know, you go to Guitar Center, wherever, or Sweetwater, and you can get one of those, you know, and it's like 10 bucks. So I, I understand that if you're a DIY kind of person, that's just like offensive that you would pay that much money for something like that. It depends on the accessory too. Some things would be a lot harder to, to replicate. But just like with home projects, like as I've learned, like, there's always that time and money trade-off. Like there are some things where yes, you can do this yourself for a lot cheaper, but are you like are you really going to spend all of that time doing it or is it more realistic for you to just spend the money and get the thing done, right? So, it depends on what the actual accessory is. I think you know, th there are some accessories that are just cooler than others, right? Where like, the Sizzler's a weird example because that, that doesn't have some insanely unique sound that you couldn't get any other way. As you get into like ching rings, things like that, that's a little harder to replicate. I don't know where I would start in replicating like Minel's ching ring, for mm -hmm. example. Um, but I'll tell you one really dope, actually let me grab it off my kit. I'll show you one super dope one. This thing, I still, yeah, I'm I hear it already. I still don't know how to pronounce 
this thing? I think it's called the uh, a juke. A juke, a j u c h, a juke. So these are these are from Minel. I got three of these. Um, this is the medium one, I think. Black is medium. There's a red one and a green one. You might have them pulled up over there. You can pull them up. Um, it's uh, so these are super little jingly janglies. They're pretty cool. And it's basically this like braided tassel sort of deal. And then they have these like little egg things. I don't know what these are made out of. But yeah, there's different sizes of these all along. And because it's like a rope with a little hook on the end, you can basically like wrap it around itself and hook it. So you could hook it off of a symbol and hang it that way. Or in my case, I put it on the hi-hat and like twist it around several times and then sort of hook it to itself. I'm going to set this down because this is definitely going to get annoying. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other ones that I have actually put on my the doors of my house. Um, so like somewhat of like a little door alarm thing. But also I train one of my dogs to, um, he comes and he like bumps his ass into it when he has to go outside. <laughs> so it makes a little noise. Um, but yeah, mine will give me three of those. And I just don't need three of them is why I'm using the other ones that way. But they have small, medium, and large. That one, you know, I don't know how you'd replicate that at Home Depot. So... And, you know, it just depends on what the accessory is. If when we're talking like accent ghost here, I mean, yeah, I think if we're talking symbol sizzler, like if, if we're really doing like a washer and a ball chain and you're in that that simplistic of a symbol jingle jangle thing, go to Home Depot, man. Go, go, up, go up the street to the Ace Hardware and, gra- and grab, some, grab some stuff from the plumbing aisle. You'll be just fine. But there are some accessories in that world that are a little bit... Um, more difficult to, to replicate. And I don't want to take away from companies like Minel who have done a lot of R&D and testing on their symbol accessories. It's not just like they went to Home Depot and said, you know, let's just grab all of this random plumbing stuff and then replicate it and sling it out the door. You know, they certainly developed um, different sound profiles for some of these symbol accessories and tested them and put them under mics. And, you know, um, so I don't want to take away from that that either. But I think for the most part, I'm going to have to give give symbol accessories a hard accent. I mean, they're cool. They're fun. Rivets alone have been around for a super, super long time. So yeah, I'll give them the accent. And I think if, if you personally want to ghost it, go have fun at Home Depot, man. Nothing wrong with that either. Next up is a photo. It's from Wooden Weather Drum Shop. It is both a snare and a kick drum. Ooh, okay. Interesting. So, 10 by 15, or 15 by 10 for the Rogers Dinosaur. So what I like, oh, interesting, okay. So my first kit ever was a Rogers kit that my mom got from a yard sale for 75 bucks. So I love Rogers, and it had a Dinosonic snare on it with the big old bar on the bottom. And what's interesting about this particular Rogers is that the finish is it says black diamond pearl and that looks very faded like it, it also might be picking up some of that green from the kick drum there like a reflection sort of thing but black diamond pearl was the same finish that I had on my DW performance series kit that I had for for many years um so yeah it's an interesting combo for me sort of like two things that I have like a personal connection to here this snare looks like it's in a little bit rough shape but it's pretty. It would be a good one to have in a collection. I bet it sounds cool. I want to know what kind of wood it is. But I see that's not in here. But 1960s Rogers Dinosonic with some weird dimensions. I mean, that's a cool cool snare. You know anything about the kick drum? Uh, I think it's uh, it said I had to find it in the comments. It's a 36-inch kick drum. <laughs> so probably marching, right? I think they were both marching pieces. Okay. And then they converted it to be used for the drum set. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. Also... 
36 inch kick drum get out of here with that i would never play play that so in this in this case i'm ghosting the kick drum anything even even 24 i can't do i, I i'm a small kick person um so yeah i'm gonna ghost the 36 inch kick drum get out of here with that but the the rogers is dope i like that snare i bet it sounds really cool it looks like it needs some work too i see some rusted some rusted screws on there yeah could use a polish yeah also that throw that ain't doing anybody any favors <laughs> that's a rough looking throw off but yeah, so I'm gonna I'll accent the snare and ghost the kick in this one. Sweet. All right, next up uh, is drum triggers. Drum trigger. Okay, so just the concept of drum triggers, huh? Or just the machine, the use, the application. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, man, this is a rough one because it, the the community, the drum community, is very split on the concept of of drum triggers or the use of them. And I think a lot of that hinges for me on intent because if you are using drum triggers to create a sound that you physically cannot play and your intention is to air quotes trick somebody or trick the public into thinking that you are a better drummer than you are that's where this gets ethically a little bit muddy that's where i don't like the use of drum triggers if it appears that you're trying to fool me but when it comes to using a certain technology to produce a sound for a genre of music where it's just required that you use this tech to make that sound, I don't have a problem with that at all. So metal would be a great example where in certain genres of metal and certain mixing styles, when you need the kick drum to sound, you know, not really like a kick drum, right? When it needs to be um, put on a grid to have a specific sound to it, when it needs to be so clicky and so attacky that you're not gonna get that sound naturally from a bass drum, whether with mic placement, EQ, compression, or any of the other tools that you might use to craft that sonic sound. You know, if you can't achieve that sound with any of those tools and triggers are the way to get that sound, to get this creative work that you're trying to produce, I don't think there's any problem with that at all. I have no problem with that. And if you do take issue with that, then you effectively take issue with like the digital manipulation of sound, which mm -hmm. is a, that's a tall order, right? That <laughs> seems like you hate a lot of music in that case. <laughs> so I think it's one of those things that always hinges on intent for me. And I have definitely seen drummers that trigger their drums when there is no apparent reason to do so. It's not like what they're playing was unplay. I mean, yeah, I guess that's the right way to say it. Like, like th there was no reason to use triggers and they use them anyway, which begs the question, like, why did you do this if not to otherwise, like, manipulate this sound to make me believe something different about your playing, right? That I don't like at all. It's sort of like when somebody quantizes something to the grid and there was no reason to do it. This is an Instagram video. So like you're robbing the organic nature of this musical performance um, and, and there's, no, there's no discernible purpose for doing that. That becomes problematic for me because it, it implies that your intention was to be like manipulative or to represent something that isn't actually you and your, your current musical skill set. And one other thing that's important to understand kind of where I'm coming from here is that in my world, in the education world, acoustic transparency is a very important part of what I do. It should be an important part of, of all educators because even when it comes to the use of audio tools like compression being is probably the best example, if I were to play an exercise for you, 
And my goal is to pass along that rhythmic information and to teach it to you. And I compress my snare so heavily that the ghost notes sound unrealistically loud. That to me is a dishonest way to present information because in reality, it doesn't actually sound like that. Now in a musical performance context, I understand why you know compressing a snare to death might give you a certain sound that, that supports that, that music that you're trying to create. But in the education sector, being transparent with your audio is much, much more important. So it's the reason that I'll personally never use triggers. You know, it's one of the things that I love about Earthworks microphones is that their, their goal is like this ultimate sonic transparency. They don't add any color or EQ to their microphones because their goal or their, their mindset is that you paid for this expensive instrument. Don't you wanna hear that? Don't you wanna hear all of the actual tones coming through um, these speakers so other people can hear your your actual truest sound. And in education, I think that level of integrity becomes that much more important. So it's really just dependent on, on what creative work you're producing. If it's educational, I think triggers have to be be off the table, right? That, that's, that's in my mind, somewhat of a dishonest way to teach. Um, but when it comes to musical performance, especially in the genres of metal or things like that, hey man, it's just a piece of tech that you have to rely on to achieve a certain sound. And again, I think intention plays one of the bigger roles here. What are you trying to do? If you're trying to make people believe that you can play something that you actually cannot, get out of here with that shit. I think that's that's really weird. But if you're trying to make a, um, a finished product that just requires the use of triggers to get a sound, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So the levels of integrity matter, intention matters. Uh, for me personally, triggers get a ghost because I'm in education. For everybody else, if you're using it for the right reasons, you're not trying to trick me, it gets the accent, man. Can't be mad at tech, you know? There we go. All right, next up is a small photo. Okay. Jazzcast.ca. Ooh, this is cool. That's really cool. Okay, weird. So what's tricky is that these sink basins... Well, okay, so water can't touch wood, right? So the drums are just holding the sink basins, which is really cool. And it's a legit, this is a totally functional sink. You got a P-trap on the sink. So the water goes actually down. And interesting. And the trash can floor, Tom, that's really dope. I, that's one of those things, like, how have I never seen that before? Where you would think that's like... That's what a floor time is, right? It's just basically a trash can. As soon as you take the head off of it, it's just a bucket. I like that a lot. This is definitely, what, a jazz club or a dive Prob bar? Probably. Gotta like be. That. Gotta be. Yeah, this is really cool. No way you're getting away with this in your own house. If you do, I bet you live with a bunch of dudes, right? <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> or alone. <laughs> or alone. Alone oh, would be more that's likely. so sad. <laughs> Man. It's cool though. I mean, yeah, I guess a man cave situation, you could have something like this. It's really cool. You'll have it one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's really cool. The bass drum seems to be out of place. Well, I guess it's just that it doesn't have a function other than holding up the toms. But you'd have to hold up the snare and the tom somehow. So I guess it does kind of make sense. <laughs> I like the trash can floor tom. I think that's that might be my favorite part about it it's really cool this is awesome i would love to go to wherever this is and wash my hands at that sink and <laughs> it's dope <laughs> christmas 2021 yeah all right next up is metric modulation or okay. more accurately tempo modulation 
and a small definition for you. Sure. Metric modulation is the shifting of the beat from one rhythmic value to another. For example, simple metric modulation might change the beat from a quarter note to a half note or an eighth note to a sixteenth. And then just as another example, we have a video from Momococo621. Okay. All right, let's play this video. Good, super clean. Huh. Yeah, man. Yeah, super, super clean for sure. This is a really good example of how metric modulation practice looks. But what's interesting is once you step outside of the the funk and prog worlds where they tend to modulate all the way to the new the new tempo the new subdivision you know really that's not how you use metric modulation in most scenarios most of the time when you use metric modulation it's a lot more subtle than in this video right it's not so black and white all or nothing where you totally abandon the previous tempo and move to the new one and actually modulate you know, most of the practical use of, of metric modulation is in hinting. That's the word I like to use, where knowing the options that are available in these other modulated tempos, you will hint at them. So when you do practice metric modulation, how she is in this video, it will sound just like that. You completely move and modulate to that new tempo. That is the correct way to practice it. And this was a great example of what that type of practice actually sounds like. But when it comes to using this in your own musical projects, that's very rarely what you do unless you're in a, like a funk or a prog band where you fully move to the, to the new tempo. Um, and it, it's hard to give really specific examples, but I can tell you one of the most useful modulations to actually study would be three against 16, right? And she actually played that in this video. I have a masterclass on this. It's called the Groove Illusions Masterclass. And what it effectively does is takes you through this idea that if you have 16th notes repeating, so one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a, what happens if you were to accent or play something on every third note as those 16th notes go by? So one E and that's two E and three E and four E up and two E and three, right? So it's like a sub pulse to the original pulse. And in the case of 316, that takes three measures to, to you get back to the downbeat of one. So it's three completely unique measures that, that I take you through in this particular masterclass. Um, and you know, it's weird because you can train your foot to do that 316 pulse. You can do it with your hi-hat, you can do it with ghost notes. And so that masterclass is a really good one um, for exploring that particular metric modulation. And the reality is some are more useful than others. You can do five against 16, seven against 16, and these get, more complicated. I think some people would argue that they're all of equal value. Depends on the genre that you're in. In my opinion, some of them are just, I don't want to say not worth your time because you get to decide that part. Um, but some are more musical than others, more like universally accepted than others for sure. So yeah, man, I mean, you got to give it the, <clears throat> you got to give it the accent because it's a, it's a tool that, that is so useful. It's just hard to describe the value of metric modulation to people who, who have never studied it before, but another phrase that's really important to keep in mind is implied 
metric modulation. So you, and that, that's just another way of saying hinting, right? That you're hinting at this sub pulse that's available to the listener, but you don't actually have to go there all the way every time. And so this is hard to explain to somebody of like, why should you study it? You know, and you're like, well, listen, you just imply them. It, it sounds kind of dumber than it is, but it's actually really cool and totally worth your time. Um, so yeah, 316 is where you want to start with that one. And again, if you want to study it with me, Groove Illusions Masterclass on OrlandoDrummer.com. Awesome place to, a jumping off point for metric modulation. All right, that'll close out Accenter Ghost. All right. And we'll move on to Sleeper Spotlight. Yes, sir. I'm not making a noise this time. Um, all right. In this, start over. I require a noise. We're not doing it without a noise. There you go. Okay, I'll take it. I'll, take it. <laughs> uh, I'll try and come up with some new ones. All right, so uh, if you're not familiar <laughs> with Sleeper Spotlight, uh, if you're new to this podcast, it's just a segment where we introduce a drummer that y'all are sleeping on, and we'll get Adam's opinions, impressions, and constructive criticism, if any. Yep. First off, we'll start with Simon Riley Drums. Okay. Simon Riley, here we go. Yeah. Got the L80? Is that the word? Yeah. Oh, the Rhythm Traveler. Cool kid. Weird hearing like it fully performed with a quiet kid like that. Interesting. Oh, and they're broken. Wow. Extra quiet. A lot of clean ideas for sure. I mean, definitely executing some like upper intermediate to even advanced sort of concepts there for sure. I would say my first thought is that it is very, very busy, almost to the point where it is, um, what's the best way to say it? It's hard to appreciate an idea because the idea has passed and a new one is here already, right? So it's almost like my first thought is let the point land in that when you have a, a good concept, a good feel, a good rhythmic thing that you want to say, which you had many of them throughout this video, allow that to hit home and to like slam into the listener. Let them sit with that for a moment instead of saying like, did you hear it? Next one. Did you hear it? Next one. Did you hear it? Right. That sort of thing. So that would be my initial advice right off the bat is to sort of... Um, just thin out the amount of ideas within one sort of thing. Because the guitar player here, very good, clean guitar tone. Um, but there's that, there's a motif happening. And you're nailing all those hits with him very well. But I would say, you know, maybe you could structure it in like a, like a format where there's three of those that happen cleanly. And the fourth one is where we choose to inject the actual idea for sure. Um, but overall, man, really, really clean playing. Clean technique too. I, I thought you're, you look very loose and flowy around the kit, like a high degree of comfort, which is really cool to see. Uh, let's go to the next, we have more video from him. Yeah, yeah, got one more, a little louder. He's got the same bells we were talking about, right? It's very similar. Looks like it.
Very clean, articulate playing, man. Very Luke Holland with the uh, the trap stack vibes for sure. <laughs> I thought that was really good. I think this, the the mix sounds pretty good too. It's a really organic. It mixes what it sounds like, not over processed or anything. Really good, really clean, man, for sure. I would say there's definitely this would be like a Benny Greb piece of advice as well. Like. Um, like I can tell, and I'm guilty of this too, I do this all the time. I can tell that you are executing, you're playing here is at the upper end of your skill set. What I'd like to see, and I wanna see this from everybody and I still deal with this all the time, is playing at like a seven out of 10 of your own skill set, right? So for me, it seems like you are pushing and reaching at the top end of your skill set. So that would be the most creative concepts that you have, the fastest that you can play them. And that doesn't mean that what you're playing isn't clean. It's very clean. I think you're, there were no, I guess what I would call like mistakes or like flubs or anything. I mean, like everything was fine. Like that's probably why you posted this recording because it actually, it sounded good. But there is something to being able to tell when someone is pushing at their skill set as opposed to backing down to like that seven or that eight out of 10. There's something to that that makes your playing appear that much more comfortable when you do that. So that would be a challenge that I have for you. Simon, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Simon, that would be a challenge that it would have for you. And it's it's a weird like dent to the ego sometimes because you go, well, I could play that a little faster. I could play that, you know, with a couple more notes in there. But it does something to the presentation of your playing when you choose to back that skill level down a little bit. So um, as impressive as some of these concepts were, definitely the trap stack stuff, that was very, very clean and quick too. Um, I would say it, it has a different hit. It lands different with the listener when you very slightly back down from that top speed or from that really creative, like, pushy territory when it's up towards the upper limits. But overall, man, I thought your technique was very, very good. I think your playing is very intentional. I think you lay into the notes you mean to lay into. I think one of the arguments would be that if you back down that speed, back down that that upper tier of where your skill set is, then you end up being able to be even more intentional so that the punches land cleaner, they land harder, right? Uh, but overall, man, very, very good. Great technique, very intentional playing, and some really creative ideas. So this is an awesome one. Cool. So next up is Ben Drummond 59. Go ahead and click on the front facing video first. Uh, Guy with the beard. Okay. Good gyro. Very comfortable. Something loose about his playing, I like. Oh, he's got the Octopad. That's that little, the sounds in the background. Octopad is so good for that. <laughs> that those Octopad sounds, I recognize so many of those. <laughs> Creative, man, for sure. Yeah. I mean, really good, very creative. So um, I guess I'll just start with like like obvious things that I see. I see um, a little bit of elbow use in there that sometimes the strokes come from, 
well, let me clarify. Your grip is great. I feel like the way the stick is sitting in your hand is very, very good. So if I freeze frame the video, your technique looks absolutely perfect. So it's not like how you're gripping the stick. That looks excellent. Um, but I do see a good amount of power or, or energy being generated from the elbow. So that's bicep and tricep sort of generating a lot of the power. So I would say focusing on getting a bit more of the wrist action happening is gonna be in your favor. It's something you should work on a little bit. And let me grab a pair of sticks actually. I'll show you a really cool exercise for this. One second. Oh, I got it right here. So one of my favorite ways to do this is to balance a stick like this over there. And if you balance it across your forearms, you know, can you get that stick to stay still? Because if you're using your, the joint of your elbow, right, the biceps and triceps, you will see this stick move a whole lot if that's where the power is coming from. And to isolate the wrist, if you just leave that perfectly still, you'll notice what it feels like to transfer that, that energy to, to have it come from your wrist instead. So it's a, a cool exercise to just sort of see where you are. Because um, I do see a little, yeah, a little bit of the bicep tricep working. Another thing, I had to work a long time on this one too, is elbows, it should almost have like, your elbows should be hanging underneath your shoulders. As soon as there becomes, I'm wearing a black shirt, it's probably hard to tell. As soon as it becomes any distance between your elbows and your ribs, to me, that where that comes from a lot of times is like this balancing attempt. Whenever things flail out like, whenever pinkies come off the stick and whenever elbows come out wide, whenever you, you, you make yourself wider, it is typically in an effort to balance. It's something that your body does naturally. Your body will make this attempt to balance itself by getting wider. So if you, I put you on a tightrope, you would go like this right away to balance. It's a really, really natural thing that our bodies do in a lot of different contexts. And part of that you know, getting a better balance on the drum set, a lot of it is just relaxation. It's choosing to like, uh, like let the shoulders out, let the elbows hang, right? Some of that tension is to like try and be more comfortable in a weird way. And I think if you look at some of the most comfortable, like confident drummers in the world, they have this loose hanging feel to them. Think Benny Greb, think JP Bouvet, think about the lack of tension in their playing, the, the hanging looseness that is their body language, right? So I would say those two things stuck out to me very quickly. The, um, you know, put a lot more attention on that, that wrist motion, try to get the bicep and tricep out of it and relax that elbow joint, and then hang, hang from the shoulders, let those elbows sit underneath you a little bit more. Um, those two things I would focus on in like the technique realm. As far as what I loved about this video, Creativity. I thought your ideas were very cleanly executed. I didn't hear a lot of what I would call physical guessing, where you're just sort of making up on the spot some like random stuff that you haven't really thought out all the way. I don't think you're that kind of player or that kind of person. Every one of your ideas in here seemed um, very, very well thought out in that you're not playing things that you haven't practiced to some degree. So I thought what ends up happening there is your ideas come off very cleanly. Everything sounds well thought out. Just like a person who speaks on a particular topic. Um, you know, it's weird when somebody like launches into a topic and you can tell like, are you just making stuff up? Like, have you ever thought about this before? You know, people do that musically sometimes and you seem like the antithesis to that. You seem like a guy who has, uh, is very intentional about what you play and why you play it. And I like that a lot. So I'm gonna play, well, we have one more video from him, right? Yeah. Okay, let's go to the next one. Here we go, check this out. Sort of thing. That's what I'm saying, that like intention, right? 
Cool. Really, really cool. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, pretty quick for sure. For sure. Let me play that one more time. That was a short one. Cool. So I think one thing that would be helpful, yeah, and that's near, it's the same sort of advice that I had for Simon and that pushing to that upper tier of your skill set, even though that was clean and articulate, I could hear everything that was happening, discernible patterns, it's not all muddied together necessarily, but I can tell that in that clip you are pushing to the upper tiers of your skill set. If you back down and play at a difficulty level of seven out of 10 instead of 10 out of 10 for you, it ends up cleaning up those ideas in a way that is really discernible to a lot of people. So that would be my advice there. And another another good piece of advice, I, I think, would be that some of the dynamic levels in here, you know, all those left-hand snare ghost notes, you're not trying to make them all the, the same level. There were some some ghost notes that were a little bit louder than others, right? So there's some dynamic play in your left hand in this clip. But I think if you slow down just a little bit in your practice, let's say, and you make that difference between the quiet ghost notes and the slightly louder ghost notes, if you make that more clear. So it's not like you're going from, I don't know, like one decibel to like 1.2. Try and make that, that a bigger dynamic gap. So when there's a loud note, make it super loud. It doesn't have to be like a crazy accent, but um, make the difference in your dynamics more clear. So it's not just like quiet and then like a little less quiet and then like kind of a little more quiet. Like I would almost say add some intention to your dynamic levels in that if it's the note, the note's supposed to be quiet, make it very quiet. If it's supposed to be a little louder, separate those volumes so it is obvious that they are louder. And that's easier to do when you slow down just a little bit. But um, yeah, man, I like a lot of your creative concepts here. And I think your technique was, to me, more impressive in this video than in the last one. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you're playing faster. So you had to clean up and get a little bit more wristy to execute that. So that was really cool to see. Um, I also dig your snare. I don't know what that wood hoop is, but that looks really cool. Really cool. Sick. Awesome. Yeah. This is a good one. Yeah. Who else we got? Last up is Andy Hoffman Drums. Andy Hoffman. I recognize so, the name. Yeah, go ahead. Play T-shirt. Okay. Here we go. Andy Hoffman. Powerful. I like the thickness, the heaviness. Exactly the kind of player you want for a live setting, right? You see that power, sort of like a like a heavy-handed thickness to his playing. Yeah, I like that a lot for sure. Um, the word intention applies again. I know I use that for all three of them today, but that word applies for sure, for sure. Very intentional, very heavy-handed. Um, it's one. Of, yeah, I mean, I need to watch that again to, to give any any real like feedback necessarily. I just I love the heavy-handedness of it. It's very cool to see that. One more time. Okay, so I do see one thing that this is a piece of Benny advice. I've given this one before. I'll pause that. Um, there is a way to think about rebound on the snare. Really, really important one here. So when you think about, uh, let's say you're throwing something like at a wall. Let's say you had, uh, you had like a brick wall in front of you and you had a, like a cue ball from a pool table or an eight ball or whatever. You know, think about how heavy that is. If you throw that at the brick wall, you might not expect it to bounce back. So the way that you throw it would be, 
you know, you, you could expect that you would sort of follow through in a weird way because it's not going to bounce right back at you. It's so heavy, it's just going to uh, and then kind of slam down. At least I think that's what would happen if you threw a cue ball at a brick wall. But if it was a tennis ball, you would anticipate it coming back at you, right? And so in the same way, there is something to be said about like that heavy handedness, which, which I play very similar in that it's it's easy for me to like play through the kit in a weird way. I, I would rather be that way than soft handed. But at the same time, these these heavy handed tendencies that drummers like you and I seem to have, you know, it, it requires that you you anticipate the physics that are happening here. So it's like you want to think about the fact that that this is much more like a tennis ball than it is a cue ball. It, the stick is coming back. And so part of a the burden of a heavy-handed drummer is dealing with that that struggle to like anticipate the bounce, the bounce to to lighten your hands in a weird way because every note that goes down must come back up. It's the nature of nature of playing drums. And I see you doing something that I that I do all the time and that is playing through the drums. Um, very much in like like who's in a good example of somebody that plays through the drums? Like Aaron Spears, for sure, plays through the kit a lot of times. But he's also very good at allowing that spring, that bounce to come back. It's one of the reasons he's so quick, right? So, yeah, I mean, that would be a, a, just a general piece of advice, something to focus on. Because you line up right where I do. Naturally heavy-handed and you play through the kit in a lot of context. So I think, um, yeah, maybe that's just something to think about. But overall, this was a, a sick video. And we got one more from you. Here's the other one. Very clean. Those toms sound good too. EC2s. Yeah, those, are, those are dial toms, right? Open handed too. Cool. Very, very good, man. That was awesome. Awesome. Um, I don't know if he is. I mean, definitely like like good at the ambidextrous stuff for sure because he was playing some right-hand lead groove stuff in the last video and then left-hand lead in this one for sure. So I don't know if you are dominant in one way or another, but really impressive that you're doing both. That's a lot of people can't get comfortable doing both of those at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought this was really, really clean, straightforward playing, that's for sure. I think, well, it's so tough because you played a left-hand lead hi-hat groove in this example. And if you are actually right-handed and you would normally play with your right hand over top of your left, then that was really impressive that you can do that because I don't know how clean my left-hand lead 16th note grooves would even be in that scenario. But I'm assuming that you're like ambidextrous-ish in a way. And so one thing I did here was somewhat of, um, what's the word? Like note clumping just a little bit where there was some like chunkiness in the the forced nature of the, the left hand 16th notes on the hi-hat. Part of that is because you were playing a pretty quick 16th note groove with your left hand. Let me see this tempo again here. I'm gonna watch the left hand on the hi-hat. are very clean. Yeah, so okay, so one thing I think I would do in order to give you a little bit more dexterity with that left hand is work on the push-pull. So the push-pull technique is one that 
Man, it's really frustrating. It's a slow technique to learn. It's not quick at all, but effectively two motions here. This is broken down in my ultimate technique lesson pack on OrlandoDrummer.com, an entire lesson dedicated to push-pull. But it's effectively, there is a push and then a pull. So it's a it's a two motion stroke. Sorry, I don't know how loud this is in here. I'm gonna go up here. Two, effect, effectively two motions in the push-pull. And what ends up happening is that you don't always necessarily use push-pull to do 16th notes on the hi-hat. You definitely can. I mean, uh, we've already mentioned Benny Greb and JP Bouvet. They do that sort of thing. You certainly can. But I find that it gives you some more dexterity in your hand when it comes to these repeating strokes like you'd find in a 16th note hi-hat groove where one hand is taking all of the 16th notes. For me, push-pull gave me like a, just a different sort of touch when it comes to repeating things like that in 16th notes. So maybe that would be a technique to sort of experiment with. I think it'll give you a little bit more of like some technique options to explore that would help with some of those note spacings that were on there. But in this particular clip, I think, I mean, I, I don't intend to imply that it's like not clean because your hi-hat, the, the hi-hat barks were super, super clean and well-placed for sure. And I think your your fills are really tasteful. You seem like a guy that is very studio-minded or live-minded or someone who's interested in playing drum parts that other people would enjoy. So you might not be like the drummer's drummer, but you're like a, a, um, a musical drummer in every other context or every other sense of that word. So I like your playing, man. I think it's really, really clean, really cool. And I'd love to see you in a live situation too. I have a feeling you do play live because you just seem to be that heavy-handed nature caters to a lot of live scenarios. So this was awesome, man. We had three good ones today. Sick. Yeah. Hell yeah. Sweet. And then I'll finish out Sleeper Spotlight, and yeah. I will leave it to you to close out the podcast. One thing that, that you and I had talked about this week was sort of this concept, I think it's best summed up in this common phrase, which is paralysis by analysis. Um, and I think this is something that a lot of creative folks, a lot of musicians, a lot of artists can struggle with sometimes, and that is this idea of not pulling the trigger on a thing that you have right in front of you because you are striving for perfection. You're still analyzing the project. You're still thinking about the project. You are making an attempt to mull things over in order to do it better than you think you might be able to. But this week, I'd love to, to just share with you this idea that if you follow more of like the Gary Vee sort of approach, which is just execute execution at all costs, if you lean into that, you know, what you'll find is that paralysis by analysis is like this state that you don't really want to be in, you know? It's okay to be a perfectionist in certain contexts. It's okay to stop and analyze um, to make sure that you're doing something in an appropriate way. Um, that's what practice is a lot of times, right? It's like that, that deep introspection to make sure that you're actually doing something correctly because you want to do it correctly. And I think artists sometimes get really hung up on this. Um, and it's something I see when... When drummers will write me and they want advice on, let's say, a piece of content that they've made or a drum lesson that they've made or a drum cover, and they'll send this to me and go, well, what can I do to make it better? I did this and I did this and I thought, you know, uh, and they want advice. But in reality, they've made only that video or only five other videos, right? And what I like is when somebody goes to seek advice and seek help and they're in the, the analytical phase of their content creator journey, I like when they they become analytical after doing stuff for like a couple years, right? I like that a lot, and I think it is in your favor um, to lean into more of the like the execution part of being a content creator, of being a musician, um, and to sort of push aside that hyper-analytical nature that a lot of creative types 
creative personality types tend to have. I think that analytical nature serves you later in your journey, later in your musical career. I think for the first, if I'm being honest, the first several years of musicianship, I think you're better off just doing, just Nike, you know what I mean? Just just do it, right? Just go do it. Execute the thing that you have in front of you and analyze later. This was something I did in my early career without even knowing I was doing it. I made drum lessons with wrong information. I would say like the kick is on the E of three. Nope, not where the kick was, you know? And I had to, um, I had this weird willingness to fail in that way. Those lessons have long been deleted, so don't bother looking for those. But I think that there's something to be said about a willingness to execute what is right in front of you and doing the analytical perfectionist artist music, musician stuff later. Push that down the road, down the road. For now, whatever you got in front of you, um, execute it this week and trust me, you will be you'll be better off for doing so. So thank you guys so much for watching. This has been the Orlando Drummer Podcast episode four. Thank you, Chris. Much appreciated as always, brother. Awesome. Awesome. Good to we be will here. we will catch you guys next week. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Bye guys.